This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, our guest Zach Mills takes us on an epic journey through the life of the evangelist, gospel leader, and civil rights pioneer, the Reverend Clay Evans, as he tells us about the last blues preacher, Reverend Clay Evans, Black Lives, and the faith that woke the nation. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Zach Mills. He's a communications scholar and public speaking consultant who studies race, religion, media, and popular culture. His work examines the power of communication to confront social, cultural, and political oppression. In addition to holding a Master of Divinity degree, he also holds an MA in preaching from Vanderbilt University and a PhD in rhetoric and public culture from Northwestern University. We're discussing his recent book, The Last Blues Preacher, Reverend Clay Evans, Black Lives, and the Faith That Woke a Nation. Zach Mills, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much, David. So happy to be here. Well, we're going to be discussing the life and the work of Reverend Clay Evans and his work establishing the Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church and his 50-year-plus career in the pulpit. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a wonderful book, but as a way of sort of getting into what we're going to be talking about today, I have asked you to read a selection from the introduction to your book, The Last Blues Preacher. Absolutely. By the time black Southern migrants like Reverend Evans arrived in Chicago in the middle of the 20th century... Both the blues and gospel music had emerged as primary vehicles for analyzing and expressing African-Americans' experiences of suffering and resilience in urban settings. As scholar Wallace D. Best argues, quote, The content of the blues has served as a lyrical map of the African-American urban world. The gospel music of Chicago revealed a similar lyrical map with a similar take on the African-American experience in Chicago, end quote. Preachers like Clay Evans were the working class orators of the black experience who intuitively merged the blues and gospel to express the hurts and the hopes of their people. This form of preaching has been described and understood culturally as blues preaching. Blues preaching was a spirituals and blues-inspired tradition of preaching that circulated throughout various parts of the South in the late 19th and 20th centuries. Blues preachers became significant pillars in African-American communities in northern cities like Chicago and Detroit as their ministries both uplifted and informed the congregations they served. The skills of the blues preacher were not acquired in a classroom or the result of some innate vocal genius. The blues preacher's skills were forged in the fiery furnace of the racism, brutality, and suffering African-Americans experienced in the South in the early 1900s. 
And that's our guest, Zach Mills, reading from his new book, The Last Blues Preacher, Reverend Clay Evans' Black Lives and the Faith That Woke a Nation. Some of our listeners are going to know who Clay Evans is, and they're going to know him and his work well, and others will have never heard of him before. So let's start at kind of a 50,000-foot view. Who is the Reverend Clay Evans in kind of broad strokes, and then from there we'll begin to dig into the particulars of his life? Sure. The Reverend Clay Evans is a significant cultural figure here in, in Chicago. He became a very famous gospel music singer in the 1950s and 60s, and, and still is. Many people know him for his gospel music, became the the founder of Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church in 1950 and retired from that position in 2000. So he served for 50 years as the pastor of Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church here on the south side of Chicago. Famous gospel music singer and also a very well-known civil rights leader. He serves as a spiritual father to Reverend Jesse Jackson and worked with Dr. King very closely during the civil rights movement in the 1960s. So again, many people know Reverend Evans for his gospel music, and people are becoming more familiar uh, with his work in the civil rights movement today. And how did you come to be involved in telling this story? Did you volunteer for this? Did someone tap you and say, you're doing it? How did you come to be involved? It's a really interesting story. So just a few blocks from where we are right now, I was serving in 2011 as the associate minister of Hyde Park Union Church. And uh, there were two women who had been worshiping with us for a few weeks, And uh, one Sunday after service, they stopped me after service and said, hey, have you ever heard of Reverend Clay Evans? I said, well, yes, I've heard of Reverend Clay Evans, but I've never met him. And they said, would you like to write his biography? (laughs) It happened that quickly and that suddenly, that unexpectedly. And I said, well, I think it's probably a good idea for me to meet him first in person. So I uh, we arranged to meet and I initially told Reverend Evans, no, I said, I think there are far more experienced and talented writers that probably should tell your story. I, you know, I was a graduate student in my early 30s and I had never thought about writing a biography. And so he looked at me and he said, Reverend, I want you to be concerned, but not worried. Concerned means you care, but you shouldn't be worried because you can't disappoint me full speed ahead. So that's that's really how it happened. In that first meeting, we had so many things in common that it really it really did feel like I don't want this to sound corny, but it really did feel like the universe was speaking to us and saying, hey, this is something that we should you all should do together. And this phrase full speed ahead, we're going to find throughout this story that that keeps coming up again and again and ties into the way that he thought about the entirety of his church and his ministry. Absolutely. We'll get into that. So let's talk a little bit more about you. So your background, you say that at the time you were preaching, but kind of give our listeners a little bit of sense of of what it was that these two women maybe saw that morning or in those mornings when they saw you preaching and ministering that made them think that you'd be right for this job. Yeah. They mentioned to me, they said, Zach, we see that you have a a background in journalism. And it's true. I, I did my undergraduate degree in print journalism and worked for a few years as a journalist. And I think they came across my bio uh, somehow, a resume, and saw that I had done some print work. And so I think they, they hadn't been worshiping with us that long. So they had heard me preach a couple times. But yeah, I think they had the sense that I liked writing and I, I, I did and that I had done some, some work for newspapers. But I hadn't done anything extensive. So it's interesting to me that they would ask me if I'd be interested because, again, they could have asked so many other veteran writers, especially here in Chicago. There's a, a, just a, a, a huge pool of people they could have selected. Well, in Reverend Evan's story, there are many examples 
souls of both the Reverend Evans and others listening to a prompting of the Spirit. And so my assumption is that maybe they heard a little bit of something from the Holy Spirit that said, this is the guy. Absolutely. I, I You know, that is something that runs through Reverend Evans' story. He is a man who listens for the Spirit and has wonderful stories where he describes in his language being obedient to the moving and the, the unctioning of the, the Holy Spirit. And so, I, yes, I, I do believe as I look back over that journey, David, that I, I, I feel strongly that, yes, the, the perhaps the Holy Spirit was speaking and, and thank God that people were listening. Amen to that. So in terms of how you went about thinking about structuring and organizing this project, and we'll get into the project in the second segment and go on from there, but right now we're still at the 50,000 foot view. Mm-hmm. When you thought about, okay, now I'm going to set about putting this thing together. How did you think about organizing it and going about the research? Yeah, it was a little scary at first. It was daunting because Reverend Evans, he was about 87 when I started to interview him. So there's a whole lifetime of information. So it was overwhelming. And so I did a couple things initially. I started to read a few books, uh, biographies on similar kinds of figures that writers had looked at. uh, So I did uh, Father Flager's biography, Radical Disciple. And so I read that and that was incredibly helpful for me as I thought through how do you capture the sum total of someone's life? You know, everything is important, but not everything is essential for the kind of story you want to tell in a biography. You can't tell everything. So that book, Radical Disciple, really helped me think through how to pull out meaningful stories that were representative of uh, this religious figure's persona, their vision, their struggles. So I, and then I also read a a good bit of C.L. Franklin's biography by Nick Salvatore and And that really helped me to think through how to manage difficult moments, uh, difficult content. For example, C.L. Franklin, Aretha Franklin's father, dealt with vicious racism in Mississippi growing up. And there are some very hard moments. That was helpful for me to read through how a writer listens to a subject talk about significant trauma. And then how do you convey that trauma in a way that doesn't feel exploitative, in a way that doesn't feel opportunistic, that I'm exploiting his pain, his, his trauma, because it was really hard for Reverend Evans to, to talk about some of those early moments growing up as a sharecropper in Brownsville, Tennessee. So those were two things I did initially to read those, those biographies, and, and that really helped me think through how to structure the book. And then a very close mentor of mine, who you know, Victor Anderson at uh, Vanderbilt, a former professor, he was instrumental when one one day I just threw this, the pages and, and files in front of him and I said, help, I need some help thinking through how to, it was just vast amounts of information. And he really, it was such a wonderful experience working with Victor, helping me think through how to structure the book. And you've, you've had the chance to speak to him intimately about mm-hmm. these issues. How does he look back on these 50 plus years He looks back with profound humility. He recognizes, and he says this throughout his music and throughout his sermons, he says, it's no secret what God can do. And he's always thinking about every step of his journey as being a step in which God was intimately involved and speaking to him and prompting him forward. And so he looks back acknowledging that it, that it, had it not been for the grace of God, especially during those difficult moments, those moments of blues that he would have been dead and gone a long time ago. He would have given up a long time ago. I think he's now come to see him as God sees him as this wonderful vessel that it is filled with potential and that has done wonderful things. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Zach Mills. We're talking about his recent book, The Last Blues Preacher, Reverend Clay Evans, Black Lives, and the Faith That Woke a Nation. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Zach Mills. We're talking about his recent book, The Last Blues Preacher, Reverend Clay Evans' Black Lives and the Faith That Woke a Nation. So I am aware that you have some parallels with Reverend Evans. So you have a significant connection to Middle Tennessee, and you have a significant connection to Chicago. This is very similar to the two anchor points that Reverend Evans had. So let's let's start back with Reverend Evans' origins. So he was born to sharecroppers in Tennessee. Tell us a little bit about when and what he faced in those early years of his childhood. Yes. So Reverend Clavins is born to a family of sharecroppers in a, a very rural town in Tennessee, still very rural, called Brownsville, Tennessee, mid-1920s. And so his family is every day as the sun comes up, before the sun comes up, they're in fields working as sharecroppers. And so from his earliest memories, he has very traumatic memories of that time, of being in the fields, of the, the intense heat. And I said, you know, how long did you work? He said, you didn't count it by hours, you counted it by the sun. You'd work when the sun was barely coming up, and sometimes you'd, you'd keep working after the sun had gone down. And so in Brownsville in, in the early 1920s, you had people, African Americans, who were being lynched and, and thrown into rivers in Brownsville. Reverend Evans was often, he tells this story of walking down the street, the sidewalk, one Sunday with his friend as a kid, and an older white man came by in a cane and called him the N-word and told them, when a white man is walking on the sidewalk, you get into the road. And so, you know, in many ways, Clay Evans' life started in this very lonely place, in the gutter, so to speak, and... Literally in the gutter. Literally in the gutter. That's exactly right. Having to walk in the gutter while white men walked by on the sidewalk. Now, for our listeners who maybe don't know this phrase, a sharecropper is not a slave, but what exactly is a sharecropper? Yeah, so after uh, slaves were emancipated, you know, you you had these big cotton, the the big cotton king um, economy, and it was not good business to, once slaves were freed, uh, white plantation owners had to to find ways to continue to make money. So a sharecropping system was put in place, and basically what this meant was that black families would work on white farms— they were technically not owned. Uh, they were, you know, the law of the land said that, you know, they weren't owned anymore, but they were paid very meager wages. They were usually paid at the end of the year. The way that it worked is that black families would live on a white farm. They would have to use resources that the white storehouse provided for um, food and, and feed and that kind of stuff. So the way that it worked is that black families would be given items on credit and 
And then at the end of the year, they'd settle up and they'd make an account for all the, the crops that they raised and sold. And usually how it would work is that the white farm owners would say, okay, well, here's what we gave you in food. Here's what we provided for you in, in terms of equipment and feed for animals. And now it uh, looks like you're, you know, you actually owe us money. So it, that's the sharecropping system. It was an incredibly exploitative and, but it's, it's the way that many rural black folk, that's how they could earn a living. So it was a very, it was a very difficult time. And, and Clay Evans was reared in that. Now, both in the book and just now, you said that as you were interviewing Reverend Evans, mm -hmm. it was very painful for him to remember and recall these years and the experiences that he had. How did you handle that as an interviewer? In what ways did you, because certainly you've got to be able to push a little bit to get some of those stories and some of that information. Tell me about the sensitivity and the way in which you navigated that. Yeah, you know, having had no experience doing a biography like, you know, before, um, I had experiences as a journalist pushing subjects to answer questions, but the stakes were different. Here, Clay Evans, he, he really struggled to talk about those early years. And it happened enough in our first couple interviews where sometimes he would burst into tears. Uh, uh, he, sometimes he would get very quiet. His body language would kind of turn, you know, he would just kind of look a little fragile and get lower. And so that struck me as, as something I was not prepared for. And so I began to think about those kinds of sessions very intentionally because I didn't want to feel like I was causing him harm. And so I wanted to push a little bit. And so I believe I did. I kept asking him certain questions multiple times because there were times when he would give kind of a surface answer, which is understandable, not wanting to, to dig a little deeper. And so I did immediately feel the need to kind of push but then also I wanted him to, to feel like he was safe because it was very uncomfortable. So there were times when I really, I say this in the book, that I questioned the civility of what we were doing. It, at some point, it felt it felt like I, I had this kind of crisis where I, I said to myself, is it worth us doing this to this man? It was incredibly painful for him. And it was painful for me to watch it happen. And then to be documenting it, it felt like I was doing something wrong sometimes. And so when I would feel like that, I would talk with mentors like Victor Anderson and others, and um, even talking with Reverend Evans, you start to think through that there there is a larger purpose. It's not just exploiting this man's pain, but I began to think that hopefully something helpful is happening as he's expressing these pains, maybe something therapeutic. And then also he and I have talked about the importance of his story helping to encourage and inspire others. And so once we started having those conversations, it felt a lot better to me that we were going into these difficult places and that Clay Evans was having to wade into these difficult places because it, it became more, uh, it became a, just a larger purpose. Yeah. And he was in his late 80s when these conversations began. That's correct. And I don't know your exact age, but I'd see, I'd guess maybe mid 30s. I'm 38 now. Okay, mm -hmm. so so you have almost literally a half century Absolutely. behind him. How did it make you feel as an African American mm -hmm. to hear about and to see the physical effect that yeah. those racisms were still having on his body and his thinking? even though he was long beyond that, had made wonderful attainments, but clearly, how did that affect you? It, in many ways, it, it first, it made me profoundly sad as I, I thought about the things he would say to me 
And it's it's weird because, you know, he, he was 80, 87 when we started. And you're right. It, he's so far removed physically from those experiences. But to see that they still they were like ghosts still haunting him that was it made me incredibly sad and then it also made me angry you know there wasn't anything I could do about it and so there's this sense in which you feel sad and and angry and then helpless and then that's part of the project then it becomes here's a way I can work through these emotions by through the writing through the telling of the story is maybe I can push back on some of these racist you know worldviews that exist today that are creating similar kinds of trauma for uh, people his age and younger and my age and younger so it, it really it hurt it made me sad it made me helpless it, it made me feel helpless yeah and it was just it, it was also I guess maybe helpless is the best word because, you know, I, I had not prepared for any of that. He is this larger-than-life figure, so such a powerful force. To see him morph into those moments where he goes from that very powerful black preacher, this, this dean of preachers, to this anxious sharecropper youth youngster it, it just and then back into this this preacher so it was a little odd too it was a little awkward for me i just you know I, there were times when i just didn't know if i should counsel him i'm so so much younger than him you know so it was confusing too now in the midst of this sort of painful background you in the book recount that his parents taught him a great deal of self-respect yes and he also heard uh, a kind of continuing message throughout his childhood. His parents were convinced that he had been called in some way to do the Lord's work. So let's begin to pivot from the pain to this promise Absolutely. that he that he's been hearing. And so, first of all, in what ways was that expressed to him by his parents? Yes. So Reverend Clay Evans, a lot of people don't know about him that this incredible gospel singer and this incredible preacher and this incredibly powerful and bold voice for social justice and, and, and civility. He did not speak until he was almost three years old, did not speak words until he was almost three years old. And his mother and father and his family were very worried because he was a sickly child. But even still, the day and we put this in the book in the very beginning, the day that he speaks words was a very momentous occasion for the family. And his mother tells him that she had been praying and praying. And from the very beginning, his parents were telling him they really felt the, the Lord had some really special purpose that the Lord had placed in Clay's life. And um, he heard that throughout his childhood. And during very pivotal moments where he would transition, for example, from elementary school to high school, and his high school was about 10 miles away from the family home. So he had to live with a family friend near the high school because it was just too far for them to travel. They didn't have a car. During those moments, the, the night before, his mother, his family would talk to him about the purpose that they believe God had for his life to be some kind of um, vessel of hope for others. And so he kept hearing that throughout his life from his parents at very critical moments when he would transition to the next stage of his, his life. You talk about hearing. There's another thing that he's listening to and hearing all through these years. And that is, and let me make sure that I've got this right. 
if they could tune the radio just right, and if they could lean in and listen just close enough with their ears close to the speaker, yes. they could listen to stations from both Memphis and Chicago. Absolutely. And so he was hearing both wonderful preaching, but also he was hearing music. Am that's, I... that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And how did that affect him as well? Yes. So Clay Evans on Sunday evenings and, and different evenings throughout the week, they had this radio and they, they did. It was you had to, to bend your ear. They say all the way down. You had to have your ear all the way down and you could hear preaching from Memphis, Tennessee, the great preachers preaching on Sunday. And you could hear churches like the First Church of Deliverance here in Chicago and their great choirs. And so Clay Evans was fascinated with music and his family would say that's where he spent his time on Sundays with with his ear all the way down. And so from the very beginning, he had this passion and fascination with music. And it just, as he says, got into his bones. But music from the very beginning, with his ear all the way down to that radio, was was enveloping him in his mind, in his heart, in his spirit from the very beginning. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Zach Mills. We're talking about his recent book, The Last Blues Preacher, Reverend Clay Evans, Black Lives, and the Faith That Woke a Nation. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest today is Zach Mills. We're talking about his recent book, The Last Blues Preacher, Reverend Clay Evans, Black Lives, and the Faith That Woke a Nation. So Clay Evans, down in Tennessee, is in this hard life of a sharecropper, and he gets to be in his 20s, and he realizes that he needs to go. And his mother says, I've got relatives in St. Louis, and he feels like, I don't want to go to St. Louis. I want to go to Chicago. Mm -hmm. What was it about Chicago? And you talk about Chicago as the new Jerusalem. What was it that made African-Americans at the time think about Chicago in such lofty terms? Absolutely. So you had a lot of African-Americans during that time that from the South that were, were traveling north to cities like Detroit and Chicago during what we know historically as the Great Migration. And for many people, Chicago was this beacon of hope because what was happening is you had family members that were traveling there and then coming back to the South, either to relocate back South or just to visit and then to go back to Chicago. And they were sharing these stories about the opportunities that existed in Chicago. And some of these opportunities were exaggerated. These stories were exaggerated. and But they were telling these stories and black newspapers like the Chicago Defender, they were publishing stories of migrants' experiences and people in the South were reading these stories. So there was all this excitement and Richard Wright uh, authors are, are traveling to Chicago and writing from Chicago and talking about the opportunities and the hope. So there was this buzz during the mid 20th century about that there could be a more abundant life possible in these northern cities. So Clay Evans sees this opportunity in in Chicago more so than other cities like St. Louis. And so he travels there at the age of 21. And he found that while there were some opportunities, there still were some challenges when he gets to 
Chicago, 1945. Well, and a lot of those African-Americans came north for factory work, but he was clear he didn't want to do factory work. And originally he thought he wanted, I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an undertaker. Absolutely. What was it that attracted him to that kind of ministry? Yes. So Al Rawls, I believe his name was in Brownsville, was the town undertaker. And he was the most wealthy African-American in Brownsville. And so Reverend Evans, he says to himself, wow, I'm in poverty, my family's in poverty. If I could become an undertaker, that might be a way that I could lift my family out of poverty. So he travels to Chicago with it in his mind to become an undertaker. That was his his goal. And he runs into some immediate problems. He has to get some money when he first, you know, gets to Chicago. So he takes on some factory work and then realizes that it's going to be $800 for mortuary school that he did not have. So uh, he then has to put that on hold. And while he's putting his dream to be a, a, you know, a, a mortician on hold, he says God had another plan for him. So he was a, a weekly churchgoer in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. He comes to Chicago, and one of the first things that he tries to figure out is, where am I going to go to church? Absolutely. And he ends up at Tabernacle Missionary Baptist Church, mm-hmm. and he ends up there joining the choir. Yes. And how does this begin to affect the direction and trajectory of his life? Yes. So he becomes the director of the youth choir, and he is now in a place, in a position where he's able to express himself musically because music was his passion. He didn't really sing much. Interestingly enough, his family would say in Brownsville, they didn't really hear him singing, but he was always listening to singing. And so this position really gave him a chance to do more singing and to direct people who were singing. So it was a a way for him to start living out for the first time in his life, some of these passions, these desires that he had been feeling in Brownsville. And he actually joins this well-known quartet singing group called the the, the, the Lux Singers. The Lux Singers, yeah. that, who uh, someone that, that we all know, uh, James Cleveland, was a member of uh, the gospel, father of gospel music here. Uh, many, many people identify him as that. He was a part of this group. And Clay Evans was singing with James Cleveland when James Cleveland was a teenager. And, and so that just so he, he joins that group and gets the chance to go all across Chicago singing in churches and, and being a part of that, that world. But he also, during his daytime, he also spends time visiting the Morris and Martin Publishing House here in Chicago. Yes. And that's a famous publishing house for gospel music, right? Absolutely. W- was he doing that just because he was a, a leader of a choir and he needed to do research? Or was there something else that was drawing him to Morris and Martin? Yeah, I think it was both of those things. I think that he um, certainly had a job to do. And so he was going there uh, as the choir director, trying to find music that, to uplift the congregation. But he was also drawn there, I believe. His passion for music, he describes standing in Martin Morris' studio going through pages of sheet music. And I think he was really drawn to that place. He, t- he tells stories of how his mother, who directed the choir at Woodlawn Baptist Church in Brownsville, would order sheet music from Martin Morris when they were in Brownsville. So he, I think for him, it was kind of this mecca place that he, kind of a sacred place that he wanted to go and be in. And so, yeah, I think it was both uh, trying to be a great choir director and getting the best music, but there was something from the universe that was pulling him there. And I think he felt so at home and comfortable amidst all of these wonderful music traditions of his his culture. Now, even though he had escaped the sharecropper life and some of the racism and the hardship of Brownsville, 
coming to the south side of Chicago as an African-American, he did not escape squalor and he did not escape conditions of privation. So tell us a little bit about how he was living as he was doing this work. Absolutely. So here is one of the challenges that migrants faced when they came to Chicago. It was this new Jerusalem, a land of new opportunity. But many found when they got here that there were significant challenges like intense slum conditions. And black people, black migrants were forced to live in this very, um, it's known as the black belt, the very, very narrow strip of land where they were crammed into apartments that are called, they were known as kitchenettes, where they would take two apartments and make them into one. And, and so families would be just packed into these these conditions. And Reverend Evans is living with family friends in 1945 when he gets to Chicago, and there's no room. The family has two children, and there's no bedroom for him to sleep in, so he sleeps in the hallway. And it just so happens at that time, the sanitation was not good in the city, and rats would crawl in those kitchenette apartments, and they would crawl across people who were sleeping in those hallways. And they would, and Reverend Evans tells stories about how he would wake up in the middle of the night to rats, the sensation of rats running across his feet. And so he knew those kinds of conditions of squalor and segregation for a few years when he first moved to Chicago. So he's singing with the Lux Singers mm-hmm. eventually, and he's got the opportunity to go all over Chicago. And as a result of this, he has an opportunity. He runs into a very famous singer whom you mentioned, mm-hmm. Lionel Hampton. And he has kind of a Frank Sinatra moment where he goes to Lionel Hampton and he interrupts and he says, I need to sing for you. What happens after that? Absolutely. It's it's one of my favorite stories. So Reverend Evans at a certain point, a few years after moving to Chicago, begins a job working at the Brass Rail, this very popular uh, nightclub establishment. He's uh, a porter, so he's bringing up cases of alcohol from the basement during the day and helping to stock the bar. And there were all kinds of musical artists that came through, like Lionel Hampton, and they would rehearse during the day. And one day, Clay Evans gets the courage to go up and interrupt Lionel Hampton as he's rehearsing. And he says, uh, Mr. Hampton, uh, if you would hear me, I would love to sing for you. And because uh, Lionel Hampton and his band would always audition new, new talent as they traveled to different cities. And Lionel Hampton looked him over and said, OK, well, You come back later tonight, young man, and and we can have you audition. And so as Reverend Clay Evans is, or Clay Evans at the time, is walking back to the locker room to change into his uniform for his shift, he feels and, and hears the voice of God say, there is another stage I have for you, a stage in which I'm going to use your voice in another way, not in the secular world, but in a world where you can encourage people to bring them closer, to strengthen their faith and bring them closer to God. But there's that clarity, and that clarity opens for him a new path, and that path sets him towards the ministry. Absolutely. So from that moment, that night where he basically stands Lionel Hampton up and doesn't show up for the audition. Absolutely. And from there, just briefly tell us from there how he begins the trajectory towards being a pastor. Yes. So after he stands Lionel Hampton up, which I, I find so humorous, he begins the work of talking to local pastors about their experience pastoring and sharing with them that he feels this call to pastor. And he surprisingly gets some pastors who are not quite as 
affirming of his call. They look at him as a, well, you're a singer, Clay. You're, you know, you're a choir director. You're not really, we don't really feel you're called to preach. He heard that from some pastors, but he began to talk to enough of them that he found a cohort that were willing to affirm his ministry and his calling. And he is um, licensed and ordained at uh, Tabernacle Baptist Church. And not long after that, he, he is founding his own church in 1950. And that church ends up becoming, well, it goes through several name changes. It starts off as Hickory Grove, and then it changes its name to Mount Carmel. And then finally, he lands on a name. And what is that name? That name is Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church. Fellowship. And so when we think about this name Fellowship, what did that mean to him? Because it had a resonance for him, didn't it? It did. It did. For Reverend Evans, the name Fellowship, you know, we have to remember that during the mid-1900s in cities like Chicago, you know, during the Cold War, there were all these national and local policies of black containment to contain black people into certain areas of a city and to keep them from living in certain neighborhoods, okay? And so for Reverend Clay Evans' fellowship, and he began to weave this notion of fellowship with this imagery of a great ship, traveling on open waters. And so for Reverend Evans, fellowship was all about people coming together to overcome the things that are holding them back and journeying somewhere together, somewhere better, somewhere more loving, some to a better place together. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Zach Mills. We're talking about his recent book, The Last Blues Preacher, Reverend Clay Evans, Black Lives, and the Faith That Woke a Nation. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front lines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Zach Mills. We're talking about his recent book, The Last Blues Preacher, Reverend Clay Evans, Black Lives, and the Faith That Woke a Nation. Well, you write in your book, The Last Blues Preacher, that African-American worship really turns on three things, good singing, good preaching, and praying. And the Reverend, now the Reverend Clay Evans, makes a decision with Fellowship Baptist Church that he wants music, good music, to be the real anchor for his worship. And he wants to incorporate singing into his preaching. So talk to me about, was this common in the African-American homiletic tradition or was this yep. innovative? Absolutely, yeah. So so this was a tradition that 
Reverend Evans was reared in, that was familiar to him. This tradition of, of hearing preachers singing, but also great choirs and the role of great singing in, in a worship experience. And so it was a familiar tradition for Reverend Evans. And I think for him, because he was so passionate about music, it was his opportunity to really let those gifts loose. And he says, though, that in the beginning, for him, he really anchored the church's ministry on the singing aspect, the emotive aspect of worship and music. And he comes during his tenure at Fellowship to really appreciate celebrating the emotion, but also the intellectual aspect of faith. So he begins really emphasizing the emotion and passion of music, but it, it begins to, to find a greater balance so that he he is ministering through music in a way that's touching the head and hearts of people. There's some points and some numbers that you give at this portion of the story that I think are significant for our listeners to know. So when he first starts off taking over this ministry, what eventually becomes the Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church, you say at first that, you know, because of the consistent quality of his preaching, this fledgling church has about 100 members. Mm -hmm. But within a few years, the church has reached a point where the choir has a hundred members. Absolutely. Like, the size of the congregation at first is now the size of the choir. Absolutely. And that tells you something about the size of the church that's surrounding him. So this really was very successful. Absolutely. It? Incredibly successful. So you're right. So the church starts with five members and it eventually grows to have what they call the 200 voice fellowship choir. And this choir is just it's like a sea just raging of harmony and love and hope. And around that choir, just thousands of people who are members of the congregation. It just swelled so big. It was it was a powerhouse church. And when they started having radio broadcasts, the nine o'clock radio broadcast was the broadcast to go to. So people would come from all over out of state to come to Fellowship Church because they knew that worship service was being broadcast live. So um, it became incredibly successful. Now, when I've heard the famous African-American theologian, James Cone, who just passed away recently, mm -hmm. when I heard him refer to himself, he would say that he was animated by the blues. Yes. When I listen to Cornell West talk about the kind of philosopher that he wants to be, he's a philosopher that says that he's in touch with the blues. Mm -hmm. What is it about the blues that is the common line between Cornell West, yeah. James Cone, and Reverend Clay Evans. What is it that makes them all look at this tradition and say, that's the identifying touchstone yeah. that really speaks to who I am? Absolutely. I, I think what it is, it's people's struggle. It is this sense of who am I in the midst of pain, in the midst of trauma, the, these ultimate concerns, like the ways that people are trying to make sense of the world in the midst of struggle and trying to figure out where is God in the midst of all of this. And so, you know, you hear people like James Cone say that the blues are just like, and, and Houston Baker say that the blues are the, the transliteration of personal pain and struggle. And so I think the, the, the common through line is, you know, as I think about what Clay Evans was trying to do at Fellowship, he was trying to speak to what his people were dealing with. He was trying to speak to their struggle, but he was trying to speak and understand that struggle. But he was not just trying to do that 
to name it. He was trying to to understand it, to name it, to help push people beyond it. For me, that's the common through line is is struggle because all of us have struggle and in struggle, we learn all kinds of things about ourselves. There are all kinds of opportunities to learn about ourselves and to learn about those who who perpetrate struggle against us. And so for Reverend Evans, it was it was how do you how do you size up the struggle? And then how do you look at the gospel, look at the Bible, look at your relationship with God as a way to move you from singing the blues to singing the gospel? Now, there's a tension in the title of your book, mm-hmm. because when we look at the cover of your book, it says the last blues preacher, and it's there as a declarative statement. When we get to the final chapter of your book, you put a question mark on the end of that statement. And so it, on, you look at the cover, it's, this is the last blues preacher. Absolutely. You get to the end of the book and it's, is he the last blues preacher? Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that tension. Absolutely. So in a wonderful interview I did with Minister Louis Farrakhan, the reason why that last chapter has a question mark is because of this interview I had with Louis Farrakhan when I said to him, Reverend Evans is the last of his generation. He came up in the, you know, the mid 1900s from the South to Chicago. He becomes a minister. So he's one of the last living members of that tradition. He's still around. So he's, he's got to be like one of the last of his kind. And Minister Farrakhan looks at me and he says, he's not the last of his kind. He says, how could he be the last of his kind? Things are worse now than they were then. He's not the last of his kind. He he sets the style. He's the model for being an agent of hope in the midst of troubling times. How could he be? Why would we want him to be the last of his kind? There are those of us who are living now who can learn from his ministry, who can be blessed by his ministry, who can be inspired by his ministry to do something similar in this time. And as you and I know, David, there's a lot of blues happening right now in our nation. There's a lot of troubling things happening. And so that question mark is the hope of that last chapter that I hope as much as I love Reverend Evans, I hope he's not the last of his kind. I hope there's something in his ministry, something in the fabric of his life that we learn and in some way emulate while we embody our own uniqueness so that we can carry on that legacy of speaking to the blues, identifying the blues, but then finding ways to point people to more hopeful horizons and more abundant life. Well, Zach Mills, what an amazing story. What an amazing life. And thank you so much for taking the time to do all of this research and bring together the life of Reverend Clay Evans so that we could learn about it in depth and enjoy it. And just thank you for taking time to speak with me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, David. It's just been a wonderful privilege to be a part of this project. And it's changed me. It's changed me in so many ways. We've been speaking today with Zach Mills. He's a communication scholar and public speaking consultant who studies race, religion, media, and popular culture. His work examines the power of communication to confront social, cultural, and political oppression. We've been discussing, we've been discussing his recent book, The Last Blues Preacher, Reverend Clay Evans, Black Lives, and the Faith That Woke a Nation. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. 
Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.